a brilliant and ambitious physicist whose connection to communism makes the FBI suspicious, pushes through moral dilemmas to become the father of the atomic bomb. The physicist J. Robert Oppenheimer, the book American Prometheus, The Triumph and Tragedy of J. Robert Oppenheimer. And you're listening to Lit Society. Let's get lit! Let's get lit. Listening to Lit Society, a podcast about books and drama and some other stuff. Mm-hmm. And it goes on and on and some on. Other hey, stuff. Yes. Yeah. Listen, readers, as you know, each week we select a theme to discuss inspired by the book that we're reading. Sometimes we throw it in at the end and sometimes we hit it at the beginning. And we're gonna hit it at the <laughs> beginning this week. And you know why? Because I'm gonna take it right from the title, American Prometheus. Who is who is Prometheus. What is a Prometheus? What is a Prometheus? Okay. So I know Prometheus from Greek mythology. What did you have Greek mythology, Kari? Yes. Mind your yeah. business. Ooh. I don't remember okay. nothing. <laughs> right. That's the point. I remember a few things about Greek mythology, but um Prometheus doesn't stand out. So I wanted to remember. And I rem- remember studying Greek mythology in middle school. Mm-hmm. So Listen, there's a part in this book that we're going to read where they're talking about um, praise for the book. And it says um, modern Prometheans have raided Mount Olympus again and have brought back for man the very thunderbolts of Zeus. And this is from Scientific Monthly, September 1945. So that's in the book there. Just in yeah, the, that's the um, intro, right? Yeah, the the part where they're giving praise to the book. Mm -hmm. So who is Prometheus? So Prometheus is a figure in Greek mythology, and he defied Zeus by stealing fire from Mount Olympus. And he gave it to humanity, which allowed them to um, progress and build civilization. Um, This act of kindness toward humanity angered Zeus. Why would that make him angry? Well, he was angry nonetheless, and he punished Prometheus by chaining him to a rock. Mm-hmm. And so when he chained him to this rock every day, an eagle would come and eat Prometheus liver, which would um, and that liver, however, would regenerate uh, each night because Prometheus was immortal. Um, so he was perpetually tormented. Tortured, yeah. Yes, yes. And so although he suffered um, from this plight, Prometheus is said to symbolize rebellion against oppressive authority and the pursuit of knowledge um, and freedom for humanity. So that's what he represents. His name actually means foresight and it reflects cleverness and strategic intellect into challenging the established order. Now, how does that come into play with um, our book uh, and Oppenheimer, American Prometheus, who they're referring to as Oppenheimer? Well, um, Prometheus is said to inspire the um, reflections on the balance between progress, progress and consequences, as well as the struggle for individual autonomy against tyrannical forces. Thank you so much for choosing this as theme of the week, because I thought that by harvesting the power of fire and giving that to someone else, that is where the comparison to Prometheus came from uh, for Oppenheimer. But of course not. You looked a, a lot farther. I thank you for this insight. And that actually makes a lot of sense because that's the sum of this book, not looking in Prometheus's case, perhaps in Greek mythology, he was um, his goal was to be generous. But throughout the book that we read this week or the half that we read this week, I saw like this inability to stop when you're headed toward your goal, whatever, uh, whatever consequences 
present themselves, you just can't stop. So that mm. makes complete sense. I love that you you found that. And really, that is the sum of it. That's all yeah. I wanted to share um, about that little tidbit. I did also do a little bit of research into why that a little further into why those comparisons exist. But mm-hmm. that's it. Um, so I think we should dig in today's book and why um, dig in a little deeper as to why Oppenheimer is referred to as the American Prometheus. So, But let's take a break first and then we'll come back. How's that? Sounds good. OK, let's do it. Before we get into the book, why don't you tell us a few things about our author and maybe share a little context for the book? Yeah, there are two authors for this book, American Prometheus, the story of Oppenheimer. The first is Kai Bird. Um, well, I'll say that it's Kai Bird and Martin J. Sherwin. For mm-hmm. Kai Bird, he was born in 1951 uh, in Eugene, Oregon. He's an American author, columnist, best known for... Uh, his works on the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Ooh, the United okay. States, Middle East political relations and his biographies of political figures. He's won a Pulitzer Prize for the book we read half of this week, American Ooh. Prometheus, the triumph and tragedy of J. Robert Oppenheimer. And then we have Martin J. Sherwin. Um, he was born in 1937 in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, he's an American Come historian. Come on, exit. Yeah, mm -hmm. his scholarship (laughs) mostly concerned the history of nuclear weapons and nuclear proliferation. He served Mm. on the faculty of Princeton University, uh, the University of Pennsylvania, University of California, Berkeley, where Oppenheimer uh, lectured, as we know, and as the Walter S. Dickinson Professor of English and American History at Tufts University, where he founded the Nuclear Age History and Humanities Center. Now, both of these men are very much accomplished, of course. Uh, Kai Bird's alma mater, uh, Carleton College and Northwestern University, and then Martin J. Sherwin went to Dartmouth, uh, University of California, uh, L.A., and as we said, Berkeley. Um, yeah, these are scholars, historians who have built their careers around uh, the science of nuclear fission and also the results of the atomic bomb. Okay. Is that enough context? That is plenty. Thank you so much for sharing <laughs> sure. um, that information about the authors. Thank you. Now, Kari, would you share um, why you chose this book for us this week? Yeah, I wanted us to um, catch the eye of listeners who may not have ever heard of our show. And because Oppenheimer is up for um, an Academy Award, um, I think like 10 Academy Awards. Yeah, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the movie, which we haven't seen. I did want to look into the backstory, the manuscript that the movie is based on. And I thought there might if there's so much interest in the movie, then perhaps the book also would capture our interest. Uh, We read a book that really dove into the minutiae of one man's life before. That was Hamilton. We didn't do it for the show. We just did it for like our real life book club. I didn't finish that book. I thought my I life too valuable. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so yeah, we'll see. We'll see how we feel about this one. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And who do you think would enjoy reading this book, Alexis? Um. So anybody that loves um, biographies. And I, I think those that are turned into movies. So the first one of this sort, um, what do you call those types of books where they, well, I guess they are just biographies, but this is, mm-hmm. there's something different about this book and they were able to put it to film, which I always think is pretty cool when they can find a, a story interesting enough to um, um, put to film. This, for me, this book was like a textbook. So it was, mm-hmm. it was, it was really uh, dense. That's the word you use, Kari. And I'm going to take that because it was very dense. So anybody that likes biographies, I think you'd like that. But then also any book that was turned into a movie might have the similar um, impact, maybe a Schindler's List, because I know that was a book 
turned into a movie. So mm. something like that. That's my thought on I will it. Say, I will say there's a type of biography that is very story-like. It really has a theme and it carries that theme throughout the person's life in order to give you an idea of who they were. This is not that type of book. This is the type of book, like Alexis said, it is a textbook. It is as much about um, Oppenheimer's life as it is about that time period in world history. It's about the 40s. It's about the 50s. And it's about the details. OK, yeah, it is not creating a story for you. Um, so you should know that. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll you tell you know. what, there is a thing mm-hmm. that comes up, especially in this first part of the book. And that's communism. Yeah, there are themes, right? Like Oppenheimer's relationship to women, which we'll talk about his relationship to politics in general. But these themes are not followed there. It's not a line throughout the book. Um, I'll give you an example. We um, read Maya Angelou's uh, I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings. That book is really about her identifying who she is and why she's um, valuable or worthy of life and living and and just valid as a human. And you see that um, in how her relatives interacted with um, racial injustice and how she was confronted with um, some assault of some kind. You see that theme throughout the book. I did not find throughout this book a theme that I could bite into. Mm, Okay. Okay. How it. long do you think it took to write this book? <laughs> More than a year. <laughs> <laughs> More than a day. I know that. Well, listen, uh, remember uh, Sherwin who um, went to Berkeley? Yes. Or served on the faculty of Berkeley, I should say. Oh, okay. He wasn't educated there. He served on the faculty there. He worked on this book for over 20 years before bringing on Kai. Absolutely makes sense. Absolutely. Can I tell you? If I work in a book for 20 years and then you help me uh, finish it, even if it take us 30 years to finish it, I don't want to share that Pulitzer with you. This wasn't even your idea. But they share the Pulitzer. So. Oh, well, there they go. OK, well, thanks. That's uh, their business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, no problem. Should we take a break or should we dive right in? You ready to dive Girl, right in? Girl, let's dive in so we can hop out. Ooh. OK, let's the talk floor about is this yours. All right. You guys, I'm going to try to break this up into edible sizes. Mm hmm. Um, pertaining to things we all probably care about. <laughs> I hope that makes sense. So let's go into part one. Please. And thank it, you. <laughs> part one. It begins. Mm hmm. Robert Oppenheimer, who I'm going to call Oppie, had spun out of control. He had to make a choice. Should he fight the charges laid against him or resign from his government position? What am I talking about, Alexis? Mm, are these the charges of communist communism? <laughs> yeah, anti-American communist ties. This is at this is I won't I won't even know I, I don't know if I can say this is at the end of his career or when he's nearly retired. As a scientist, I don't know if you ever retire, retire, but he is not at all. The bomb's blown up. He's made the bomb. The bomb is blown up. All that's done. And now charges are being brought against him of um, political. um, Yeah, political affiliations, which is Um, crazy. So please, especially as you read the book where you see his kind of um, attitude toward politics in general. Mm, It's very interesting that um, someone chose to make their career a political career, perhaps on the back of bringing down Oppenheimer. Well, anyway, Oppenheimer had made enemies and allied himself to communists during the worst time for such friends in American history. We know about the witch hunts. We know how people were blacklisted, um, how their livelihoods were taken from them. His home was tapped. Bad press was published about him. He felt like a hunted man, hunted by the country he loved, um, the country he'd given so much to. He made a choice. He was going to fight the charges laid against him. He loved this country and he felt he was fit to serve the government as he had been doing for over a decade. So how are you going to say I can't do my job after I've been doing it for over 10 years? Some Explain of us can that, relate please. to that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Nine years after the highlight of his career, his government had made him one of the most notable names in their anti-communism campaign. 
He'd argued to control the nuclear power that he'd helped develop. So he made it. He was like, and I'm saying he made it. I'm being real glib here. Of course, there was a team, a city of people that actually made this. And even the idea for the um, atomic bomb was not his alone. He took the science um, and the uh, experiments of others and just developed it further. but credit is due. So he was head of the city that basically developed the bomb. So just know that when I say he made it, I'm just doing this to be, uh, I don't know. Yeah. The just credit so you is know. given we to know. him. Yeah. The credit is given yeah. to him. So th- we're following the line. Yeah. So as soon as he made it, he was like, uh-uh, don't use it. <laughs> it's crazy. It's crazy. <laughs> it was a weapon that could wipe out the whole world. Uh, a government... Uh, official asked him so yeah yeah that's great how can we protect ourselves as Americans and he was like with a screwdriver take that screwdriver and open everyone's luggage everyone's bag in the whole world (laughs) and uh, you know they didn't really get the point um the only defense against nuclear terror was the end of nuclear weapons, but that was ignored. His arguments dismissed the events that would secure his leg- legacy and ironically end his career had begun. So let's get into that. He was wise. He was foolish, according to some. Physicist Freeman Dyson compared Oppenheimer to Faust. Uh, do you know the story of Faust? Oh, I do. But that's an old, old memory. Yeah, so Faust makes a deal with the devil and then is like, yeah. just kidding. I want everything you gave me, but I don't want to give up as much as I had agreed to give up. And just like Faust, um, Oppenheimer tried to backtrack on his um, arrangement. Uh, <laughs> some saw the ridicule of Oppenheimer as anti-Semitic, but who was he and what he truly believed in is what we'll dissect here. His childhood was idyllic. Uh, compared to some, perhaps. Uh, His parents seemed very much in love. They were of money. His mother was an artist. His father was, um, ooh, he was like an industry man, right? A textile importer. And his mother was a painter. What this means is that um, this was a non-practicing Jewish family. Uh, They had money and he he felt secure and nurtured at home. Um, It was an irony that his life devoted to social justice and science would end in mass death underneath a mushroom cloud. Uh, He was devoted to science from an early age and he saw it as unrelated to religion. He was wealthy, doted on, um, but generous and thoughtful at first, uh, maybe even a little humble at first. um, But quickly, that kind of changed. He was curious, intelligent, a very precocious child. And he rewarded his parents, he said, by developing an ego. Um, Let's talk about (laughs) what that type of child goes through growing up. So um, just taking, for example, school and camp life. So a strong influence during his formative years was John Lovejoy Elliott, his teacher at school in ethical studies. Uh, Elliott was born in Illinois to a family of abolitionists, and he became a beloved figure in the progressive humanist movement of New York City. He was a critic of America's entry into World War One. He was a man who led charitable charitable foundations and political thinking. Uh, For example, when two Austrian leaders of the Ethical Cultural Society in Vienna were arrested by Hitler's Gestapo. Do you remember what Elliot did? Did he help him get out? At the age. Yes. At the age of 70, he actually flew to Berlin and spent several months negotiating with the Gestapo for their their release. And after paying a bribe. Negotiated with the Gestapo. For several months and after paying a bribe, Elliot succeeded in sprinting the two men out of Nazi Germany. Um, Oppie's political sensibilities can easily be traced to Elliot and the education he received at that school. A teacher described him as receiving every new idea as perfectly beautiful. That's Oppenheimer. Um, however, his intelligence was often perceived as aloof and his attitude arrogant. In camp, um, one really terrible situation is described. He made the mistake of writing his parents to tell them he was happy at camp because the boys there were teaching him the fact of life and his parents got that letter and was like now what that mean and who in the what for so they went down to camp (laughs) they quickly came in to check in on him and the camp director announced that a crackdown 
was happening on salacious stories. <laughs> For tattling, the boys at camp stripped Oppenheimer naked, doused his genitals and butt with green paint, and left him naked and locked in an ice house overnight. He didn't complain. He suffered in silence. He wanted a friend. He wanted companionship. And he never Ooh. left the camp. No, he stayed there. He stayed there the rest of the time. It was no doubt a matter of pride for him. Like, you're not going to run me out of here just because I'm telling everything. Um, he entered Harvard with a fellowship, but was declined. He declined the money because he didn't need it. His fellow students admitted he could run circles around them intellectually, uh, aside from like music and romance and feelings. But when it came to science, there was no match. <laughs> he had no social life. He spent long hours studying because he wanted to graduate within three years, which why would you do that if you're not paying? But whatever, <laughs> if your parents paying. He but wanted time, time to do what he wanted wanted to do. Yeah, there's some benefit in taking your time too, uh, which I don't think he ever learned. He was I, always running towards something. Wasn't there a thing about him wanting to prove that he was just really great and better at everything than everybody else? Always trying to prove something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah you're right. Um, he demanded much from his friends. Um, some Somebody called it like really stressful it was kind of a pain to live with him. Um, he had depression, bouts of anxiety. He was at one point diagnosed with schizophrenia, not an official diagnosis. I don't think this was the assumption that a doctor came to. And he was often um, a trigger warning, suicidal. He was getting sleep deprived. He was acting strange. He possibly tried to murder someone with a poison apple. Y'all listen. <laughs> This is all so that he can graduate within three years and feel smart and show everyone how smart he is. He is taking on extra work. He is not sleeping enough. Someone was out with him um, and he was like, I got to go. And they were like, why? Where are you going? He's like, I gave someone a poison apple. I got to see how it worked out. No one knows if he kills someone. No one knows. But he did. So, oh, well, no one knows if he killed someone at this point. I think the person was okay. Yeah. Then he read French novelist Marcel Proust and was cured. What? <laughs> he found an ally in this author. And he was like, guess what? I'm not loony. Yeah. He met Danish physicist uh, Bohr, who was praised by none other than Albert Einstein. Bohr's mother was Jewish, and in 1922, he won the Nobel Prize for his uh, theoretical model of atomic structure. This is a big deal. This is like when you meet a friend and she's everything you want to be and she's got everything you want. And she also shares your passions, but she's excelling in them. And you're like, I want to be like you. I don't know what that's like, but that's what I assume it's like. <laughs> so... <laughs> Bohr, though, became like a god to Oppenheimer. And I don't know if this godlike relationship ever stopped. So throughout his life, no. you'll see Bohr pop up, say something, and then that becomes Oppenheimer's mission. So dangerous. Yeah, right. This is a man who was um, religiously aloof, but he seemed to be making a religion out of everything. Um, Oppenheimer became smitten with an intelligent intelligent classmate named Charlotte, and so did a peer named Frederick. A contemptuous of authority and armed with a dangerous wit, Frederick liked to tell his Gentile friends, when your ancestors were still living in the trees, mine were already forging checks. As it turned out, Oppenheimer and Frederick would later both work on developing an atomic bomb, but Frederick would do so in Germany. Mm -hmm. um, let's talk a little bit about his relationship in view of women. He didn't really understand them. He was like, if you need one, like you actually need one, then go ahead and have one, but don't get attached to it. Um, because you need to be brother, thinking about right? science. <laughs> yeah, because his brother, his brother seemed to be like a cutie and like mm -hmm. all the girls is loving. Although all the girls seem to be loving Oppenheimer. Describe these men. They are like a hundred pounds soaking wet, right? Right. But they're really tall, dark haired. And then I think Oppenheimer also had blue eyes. Oh, he's he's emaciated. <laughs> 
Okay. Yeah, he's but weird. The he talks love to himself him. constantly. But all the girlies love him. They say mm-hmm. he was a woman magnet. Everybody, all yes. the women would flock to him. He was like the life of a party when it came to women. You see Oppenheimer, mm-hmm. you moving in. Okay. Yeah, and he off, he also had like a soft quality to him. So women felt comfortable divulging their darkest secrets to him, trusting that he would know exactly what to say. I, I, some parts of this book, I'm like, okay, you a fan? Because I feel like <laughs> this is the beehive writing a book about Beyonce. No, like, listen, how much of this can I believe? Listen, some of these women wrote <laughs> wrote things and you could just draw that out. Uh-huh. Don't blame Let's it on the about his. I don't get it. His first <laughs> appearance in the media. Do you remember what it was? Mm, no. Mm-mm. He took a girl out on a date. They like drove to a field. Oh, and he was like, yes. I'm going to go for it. <laughs> he told her, I'm going to just go for a walk for a little bit. And so she sat in the car and fell asleep. And then he said he went up to the car and was like, I'll walk home from here. But she was asleep. So she didn't hear him. Wait. So he, he went home. told her, drive home and I'm going to walk home. So she wakes up. Hours have passed. She like, oh, he did. So she finds the authorities. They go looking for his body. And just on a whim, they decide to try his house and he in bed sleep. And he like, oh, I told her it made international news. Y'all, he was so embarrassed. <laughs> yeah, he left his date in the car. I think the headline was, um, oh, what was it? <laughs> man, 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 man parks girl walks her. I forget what it was it called. Was, man, it was, cute, though. It was, it was funny. Was very catchy mm-hmm. headline. Yeah. So anyway, Appy gets his doctorate. His intellect is growing. There's a lot of science stuff here. He's learning things. Bada bing. Um, <laughs> he finds a desert home and he's flush with money. He calls it like uh-huh. a Palo Caliente, right? Yeah. Palo yep, Caliente. Yep. Palo. Mm-hmm. And it is his oasis. Okay. He loves it. New Mexico, right? The desert yep. of New Mexico. Now, if you if you love a place, you think you want to preserve it like for future generations and stuff. <laughs> anyway, we'll get to that. So he just loves New Mexico. It's great. Um, he, there are some really dreamy scenes of him whenever he can inviting someone to go for a horseback ride. They stop, can't light a fire, camp, ride some more. It's just beautiful. Um, you can imagine the colorful purple sunsets like they have at the West going down over the mesas. And it's just it takes him out of this go, go, go element of college life that he's been um, nursing on for so many years um now he becomes a lecturer soon at berkeley he's a difficult instructor at first you can imagine he's young he's got a chip on his shoulder um but a following developed that copied his mannerisms if he started talking to himself they started talking to himself if he'd walk in circles they'd walk in circles and this is just evidence of how charismatic he was in a way that we don't really find nowadays he wasn't like superstar debonair charismatic he was a man people in this industry wanted to be like he was a scientist a young brilliant mind that people wanted to emulate Um, His relationship with Jewish heritage uh, was kind of, uh, it seemed that he was embarrassed of it. And this is really disappointing because he was a man who could learn a language quickly and he made a point to learn many languages. If people were um, discussing a text that was originally written in Italian, there's um, a scene where he went and learned enough Italian to properly quote Dante, stuff like that. But his um, Jewish heritage, he was distancing himself from in the beginning. Um, And he seemed to embrace it. His embracing his Jewish heritage seemed to coincide with him becoming more confident overall as a man in life. Um, Unfortunately, his mother passed away at the the age she he was 27 when she died. Uh, He was devastated. Soon he started having lunch with his father every day. So his father wouldn't be lonely. And this seemed to be a highlight of his father's life. Um, Oppenheimer's friends would quickly become his father's. And his dad was just so proud of him that he just loved spending time with him. And um, Alexis mentioned, too, that Oppenheimer had a brother. He was kind of fatherly over that brother, too. It was his younger brother. And the dad started spending more time with both boys. Um, Let's talk about part two. Okay, let's move on. Love, (laughs) Gene. 
It's a girl named Jean. Jean was said to be his truest love. Maybe his first, maybe his only. They met when she was 22 years old. She was petite, beautiful, well off, daughter of an English scholar, devoted to Shakespeare, could quote any sonnet. Um, She looked like a Russian princess. And related to the... um, the, the royal class. Aristocracy. Mm-hmm. At least, yeah. Mm-hmm. Brilliant, beautiful. A friend called her worthy of Oppenheimer in every way. Mm. That's how people describe me when I met my husband. <laughs> oh, that Kari, yes, she's worthy of him in every way. Did they though? Anyway, no. Mm-hmm. A non-practicing member of a few religious institutions, uh, Jean was an early non-fascist. She was like, I don't like Hitler because he says Russia's bad and I love Russian art. And I don't even want to think of a time of Russia not being the best of everything. Their romance was intense from the start, this Jean and Oppenheimer romance. She was aware of his um, eccentricities. She was introspective like him. He explained, uh, she explained away his odd behavior to a childhood focused on intellect. She'd tell friends, he'd be walking in the circle mumbling and she'd be like, well, you know, he was raised to give lectures at seven. And so he never really developed. I don't know why she's got an English accent. But anyway, (laughs) she she didn't. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, she might. <laughs> she aspired to be a Freudian, Freudian psychoanalyst. She was against any type of religious claptrap. Um, their relationship survived for three years and her passion for social causes rubbed off on him. So as he's developing these friends, Bohr and now Jean is shaping his personality and his core ideology. He became interested in social responsibility. He devoured Marxist and um, pro-Soviet literature thanks to his friends and family. He assisted relatives in Germany, helping them financially and otherwise to immigrate to America. Um, One example is his father's sister, his aunt. He helped her and her family to come to America and escape Nazi Germany. Uh, They loved him forever for it. Julius, um, his father died of a heart attack at 67. It was a shock. Um, he'd grown closer to his sons mm-hmm. after the death of his wife and Oppie's friends had become his remember I said so it was real blow to Oppenheimer but he was still very close to his brother almost fatherly like I said before um yeah, so the brother is artistic, diverse in interests. He married a woman Oppenheimer didn't approve of. Oppenheimer would call her a waitress. Um, he joined the Communist Party, but his devotion to it was vague. That's all I'm really going to say about the brothers. Typical brother stuff. So was Oppenheimer a communist? Alexis, can you answer this for us? No. I can't no, you answer, can't answer it. it or not. And also, yeah. no, he wasn't a communist. That's what he said. It's, Listen. Go on. Listen. If it's a meeting of hmm, murderers, <laughs> I know I'm comparing <laughs> communists to murderers, but just go with it for a second. No. If oh. they meet every week in my neighborhood, and I, I go to the murders, you know, I dabble in murdering. Am I a murderer? <laughs> I might you not hold wait, a card. Right now. You said, <laughs> I might not have a card that says I'm a murderer, but I go to the meetings and I do what they do. You said you do what they do. If you murdering, you are, you're a murderer, okay? That's different. Thank he would, you. That proves he, my point. He would go to these <laughs> meetings, not all of them, and there was <laughs> there is this line where it says that there were certain things that members of the communist party could not do and he was doing them so he wasn't a communist period he was just too arrogant to apply any type of rules to his life that's all but that don't make him a i communist. think this book shows he was aloof about it he dabbled in it i mean to me it's like just because you don't have the wherewithal to be um truly devoted to a cause does not mean that you are completely excused from it either he didn't even pay membership dues so i don't know how you can say that this man a whole communist but whatever (laughs) here we go let's move on let's agree to disagree oppenheimer met kitty harrison and fell in love friends were concerned kitty been married three thousand times she was german Fashion forward, fine. She was from a Euro aristocracy, uh, old money family too. Um, she became a bohemian in college. Um, hanging now. Wait, real quick. Let's um 
go ahead and clear up all 3000 uh, marriages right quick. That's ki- that Kitty done jumped in and out of. Uh-huh. So at first she was like a boho college student and she'd hang out impulsively with these artists and impulsively married one, a Boston born musician. She happened upon her husband's diary one day. It's like if you find your boyfriend's phone and you just go through the text messages, you don't expect to find nothing, but maybe you will, you know, just a hunch. So she decides to go through his diary. <laughs> what she find, Alexis? <laughs> on this hunch. She, I think the main thing, I know there was something up, but the one that stands out was that he was uh, a homosexual. And so she was, go ahead, able to get the marriage. Alexis, annulled. you're wrong. He was a drug addicted uh, homosexual <laughs> drug addict. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Drugs were first, and also he was a homosexual. But yes, those things yeah. did happen. Mm-hmm. Imagine reading your boyfriend text and his text message to his friend is like, "Ooh, I sure do love being married and being a drug addict, uh, addicted homosexual." That's <laughs> so that <laughs> happened. Uh, the courts granted her divorce due to obscenity. Second husband, who she never stopped loving. This man uh, had money, liked to live poor. One of them people. Uh, he was a communist, <laughs> communist. Okay. <laughs> he was like, we gonna live like he the did. people. She's like, how come we like, can't live like the rich people? I can't live like he this. He must have been crazy fine. <laughs> This man was gorgeous. He okay? was. He was. They would have to go to the well to get their water. They would pass five Starbucks on the way to the well to get their water. She come bringing it back in the bucket like, here you go, baby. No, anyway, she, said she got tired of that life. She did not want it. She didn't it. leave him for a little bit, but he was too fine. It was like five days. She went right on back. <laughs> but anyway, um, he died in battle, you guys. It was really sad. She was a 27-year-old widow of a war hero. For stability, she then married an older doctor she'd known for years. <laughs> Almost immediately, she hated him. I said, as soon as she got married, it was just not what she wanted. She knew, but she hung around. Mm, okay. She met Oppenheimer at a party. They began dating despite her marital status. She um, was Kitty spent married. two months. Big it's married. just how bold and arrogant yes. Oppenheimer was. He was like, hey, you and your husband want to come to my desert house? Hang out because I love inviting people there. Her husband couldn't come. And Kenny was like, well, I can still go. He said, maybe invite your wife too. Uh, Maybe your wife can come without you. I don't know. It might be dangerous, but invite her too. Oh, you can't come. come. Can Kitty come? No. Anyway, soon she was pregnant with Oppenheimer's child. Civilly, Oppenheimer called the husband. Do, do, do. I don't know if they have phones. I don't care. Uh, Did they have phones? It's the 1940s. (laughs) Yeah, did they? I don't know. He was like, hey, your wife got my baby, so go ahead, divorce her. The doctor conceded. And so they divorced. And on the same day of their divorce, Oppenheimer and Kitty were married. They had a daughter and then later a son who Kitty barely tolerated. She did not like that little boy. She didn't emotionally now, connect to the children because they were gone immediately after they were born in someone else's care, if you will. I'm sorry. Let's just dissect this for a moment. It is important for parents to spend, especially those first few months with their child to connect emotionally. Fine. But my parents uh, went on a trip and left me with my grandma. I, st- I mean, they didn't abandon me. How old were you, <laughs> These though? people just went on vacation. I was a baby in the arms. That's nothing. How old were you? Were you six months old? That's nothing. This child Who was cares? two months old and they left immediately. Well, we ain't talked about after. it, but these are not good parents. Now, the book don't say this, but these are bad parents. That's this isn't the only child that they leave like with somebody. Mm-hmm. Nope. The other girl, mm-hmm. they, the girl they left with somebody too, remember? Listen, <laughs> just real quick. And then I ain't gonna talk about it no more. These people, it is so hard for me to read this book because these are the most selfish, privileged people I have ever read about or heard of in my life. These people had a child, didn't like the child from the get. Let's not pretend. So he took Kitty away so she could go party. They could go have a good time. And they left the child with a family. This is two weeks. They came back and was like, hey, y'all, we back. And the family was like, oh, here's your child. And they was like, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, put that in the bag. 
We'll take it. Silly. Years later, years and years later, they have a little girl. Someone they know miscarries. They leave the little girl with the woman and act like nothing happened. Like they never had that little girl. One day Oppenheimer no. goes to the woman's house. No way. They sipping martinis and gossiping. And she's and the woman is like, well, this is nice, but don't you want to see your daughter? And Oppenheimer goes, oh, yeah, you want to keep her or... The, the woman is disturbed left. by this conversation. She's like, maybe you should talk it over with Kitty. And he's like, oh, no, because um, I know it's cool. <laughs> you can keep her. You want her? She's probably cute. I mean, I wouldn't know. I don't he be looking said, at her like that. But she probably to you cute. first. I wanted to talk to you first. I the woman said, uh, <laughs> I love children, but this is your child. So anyway. Let's move on. Y'all, I'm tired. The science. (laughs) January 1939, Otto Hahn and Fritz Stressman successfully demonstrated that the uranium nucleus could be split into two or more parts. They'd achieved fission by bombarding uranium, one of the heaviest of the elements, with neutrons. Yes, science. Uh, I hate this stuff. So when Oppenheimer heard about this, he was like, it cannot happen. That's impossible. And then he went to the chalkboard and proved mathematically how it could not be done. But the next day, the experiment was successfully repeated by someone else. And when he saw it right away, he accepted it in less than 15 minutes. Not only did he agree with the reaction, believing it to be authentic, but he also speculated that in the process, extra neutrons would boil off that could be used to split more uranium atoms and thereby generate power or make bombs. It was amazing. Someone said to see how rapidly his mind worked steps were being made toward destruction <laughs> i'm trying <laughs> i'm trying with this book way to make it exciting Carly. Yes! way to make it destroy why are we doing this oh just because we can that's all it had a purpose <sighs> we'll talk about it So um, he was instructing at Berkeley at this time. He was uh, careful at this moment, even fatherly toward his students. If he saw his students was were in over their head, he'd assign them things that they could tackle so that they could reach their scholarly goals without hindrance. So he's different now as a lecturer. You see him being more. Uh, just caring in his dealings with people as he's becoming more satisfied in his domestic life, except for them kids he don't like. Um, (laughs) Communism was still big, although many had cards and attended meetings as a sort of hobby. (laughs) Okay, these people had like very little to devote themselves to aside from their careers. And so sometimes they would just pick up communism. It seemed to seem idealistic. Lab workers were forming unions nonchalantly. (laughs) A bomb project was being conducted by the U.S., an effort to develop the bomb to end all bombs before Germany developed it. Do you remember the name of that bomb project? The Manhattan Project? You know it. It was a program of research development undertaken during World War II to produce, produce the first nuclear weapon. So this made the rise of communism a real concern now. It used to be something you could just do sometimes. But now with this um, Manhattan Project going on, people wanted to be a part of that. And you couldn't do that if the government suspected you were a communist. It's all fun to buck against authority until you want to be part of authority. <laughs> you actually want to be part of the future of science. Uh, So a communist hunt was started and a slew of two teachers were fired. Oppenheimer was eventually brought into the bomb uh, group, into the Manhattan Project for his intellect. They just could not deny his intellect. Um, He was too smart. He would probably figure it out anyway, not just uh, the formulas that they were trying to uh, create, but also just the existence of the Manhattan Project. He'd probably figure it out. So they was like, come on, you can be part of the club, even though we think you a communist. Mm-hmm. And I never stopped being suspicious of him. Pearl Harbor, December 7th, 1941. After this event, Oppenheimer's idealistic political views and causes switched to concerns of local politics. Now he's about America. He's a true like patriot now. Um, he's like 
I'm I'm going to stop concerning myself with Spain and start concerning myself with more pressing matters. Um, so eventually he cut off all communist friends. Uh, he bit. Um, he stopped biting into communist theory publicly. Uh, American government was still suspicious of him. Against the recommendation of many, Oppenheimer became a candidate to lead the central lab for all those working on the bomb project. So within the Manhattan Project, you have the Los Alamos um, project, I think it's called. But anyway, that's what Oppenheimer would eventually be over. And people were like, are you sure? Because he probably a commie. And they was like, yeah, but he too brilliant. So let's just keep him and then like tap his phones if he has a phone because it's the 40s. That's they got a phone, right? Yeah, that's like keep your enemies close. SyncTac, Nokia. Yeah, yeah. Keep your enemies co- close. Um, American interests really became divided here between chasing communists and racing to a powerful bomb before political enemies got to that science. Uh, Oppenheimer's associates were illegally monitored, surveilled, drafted, fired, blacklisted. So let's talk a little bit about the Chevalier affair. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So there was this situation where a man named Chevalier came to, I want to say it's Oppenheimer's home for dinner. And at this yeah, home... Yeah, if Bohr is like a god to Oppenheimer, Chevalier is like his best friend. Yeah, so he They're comes... like the couple that this couple always hangs out with. Okay, and so he, he comes to this house for dinner. And while they're there in mm-hmm. the kitchen, while the ladies and somebody else are in the other room, another couple, he asks him to share secrets on the Chevalier does to share secrets on the Manhattan project of which he was over the Los Alamos Alamos yeah division of it yeah so Chevalier is like hey since I got you here uh you and I have a friend he's English um he's just like us and you know he just wants to know if you have any information about scientific work that you could share um with a diplomat, <laughs> you know, like a gentleman. <laughs> That's so. Mm. Now, what happens next is uh, compared to a story where everyone's version of it is different. Um, Oppenheimer says he right away told Chevalier, "That's treason." No, you're bad. Stop. And then they had martinis. Um, Chevalier was like, Oppenheimer was upset. And then we had martinis. Um, Kitty was like, I was actually in the room. And you'll find that Kitty gets really bored in life because she's actually a genius. And to just reduce her life to uh, the mother of these unwanted children and Oppenheimer's wife, it, it drives her to like alcoholism and busy bodying. So maybe she's telling the truth. Probably not. So she says, <laughs> in the kitchen <laughs> like why would they have this conversation with you around but that's mm-hmm. what she say what and she, she says she's the one who said hey that would be treason and then um, Chevalier's wife it. Chevalier's wife got mad at him they divorced he was not the best husband in her opinion so she was like what happened was my no good husband came to the house all funky because he didn't hardly bathe and his teeth was nasty and um he was ugly that day and we went in the key went in the kitchen and I already knew what he was gonna say because he wasn't nothing but a treasonous uh fool and he went in there and dropped some treason on the table and Oppenheimer was not having it wow and that's what happened that's what she said so yeah whatever Mm -hmm. so this will not go away this conversation was um picked up during illegal surveillance um or with illegal surveillance and it will become the foundation of the case against Oppenheimer even though right away uh they all agree that he was not with the idea and he turned it down vocally the problem is anyway he wouldn't when they talk to him about it he never reveals all the people involved so that's problematic it seemed like you hiding something if you do that so the FBI it's more involved than just the British diplomat um, Chevalier his wife and Kitty and him but he won't say who else so 
Let's talk a little bit about Los Alamos, the world's first nuclear weapons laboratory. At first, Oppenheimer was naive and in over his head when he was uh, picked to lead this project. He underestimated its size and cost. He was like, yeah, give us a couple dollars and 20 people. We'll get it done. (laughs) Yeah. This outpost at Los Alamos in uh, New Mexico grew from whatever their group was originally to over 4,000 people. They burned through millions of dollars. Uh, The town was like this like-minded, protected community, averaging 25 years old. No one was over 50. It was a utopia for some people, at least at first, but soon it became like a cage in many ways. They was like, if if a friend invited you out to eat and you just didn't want to go, they drive past your house and be like, I see you in the windows. <laughs> it was just too much. Everyone knew everyone's business. Uh, one of the houses got turned into a burlesque house um, and then diseases started spreading. Uh, and they tried to close it. Did they close it down? Yeah, they are. They all knew about it. Mm-hmm. Anyway, it was just, yeah. Anyway, um, soon it became to feel like a cage, especially to Kitty. Uh, Kitty and Oppenheimer's relationship was actually pretty good. It seems to other people that she respected him, although she cut him off in conversation and kind of speak down to everyone. No one really liked Kitty, but it was undeniable that she was... Um, I don't know. She was like a a great host because she had nothing else to do. And she was an intelligent woman. She preferred the company of men. Men didn't like her either. Everyone could tell she was mean. (laughs) They have words about her. Yeah. And you know who she didn't like? Her kids. So anyway. Oh, actually, that reminds me. Um, The government started spying on their house. But Oppenheimer and Kitty, they knew it. Uh, so <laughs> Kitty would trick government officials into babysitting her kids and she wouldn't come back for hours. Do you remember that? <laughs> yes. And once the head of the FBI, whoever was over this case, <laughs> realized what was going on, he pulled his man off to Kitty. <laughs> She'd be walking to the kitchen like, where are them communist papers? I'll be right back. And then she goes shopping for like five hours and come back. And they'd be like, where are the communist papers? She'd be like, what are you talking about? I've been drinking. <laughs> she had problems. She was she not. had problems. She was not happy yeah. and she was not occupied properly. So scientists, once accustomed to loose boundaries and choosing their hours, were now under strict rules and painfully long hours. A sense of mission and duty was the only thing keeping all of these people going. Mm -hmm. Wartime compelled some mild-mannered men to contemplate the once unthinkable. A friend proposed kidnapping um, him and um, Oppenheimer's old friend Heisenberg. They were like, you hear what Heisenberg doing in Germany? Should we kill him? For real. That was the conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Oppenheimer was like, um, no, let's just (laughs) tell the government. (laughs) And the friend was like, okay, you sure though? Because I'm down. Oppenheimer was like, yeah, I'm sure, man. Nah. (laughs) So Oppenheimer had other activities the government was noting. He was seeing Gene twice a year. Remember, that's the Mm -hmm. one that looked like uh, who was really in love with Shakespeare. Um, She was Possibly an aristocrat. I think a Russian aristocrat. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, he really liked that girl. They may have been some. There may they may have been uh together while he was with Kitty, but he definitely went to see her about twice a year, and the government knew about it. Mm-hmm. During their last visit together, Oppenheimer said that she admitted to still loving him. The FBI suspe- suspected though that they were sharing secret intelligence between each other. Like she, she was, was working with some Europe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because she was believed to be a communist anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So the FBI was constantly spying on Oppenheimer. Eventually, they asked about the Chevalier conversation. Oppenheimer gave them the name of his best friend, Chevalier, and that only. It became known as the Chevalier Affair. Unfortunately, Jean unalived herself. Um she drowned herself in the bathtub, maybe giving herself drugs. But this is all very suspicious. Her father found her. He never called authorities. He like went through her house looking for papers, photographs. He was burning things yeah. like it seemed getting rid of evidence. Um, and who knows if that was her father who did it? Maybe 
someone found her who was spying on her. Her father later found her and all that was already done. Listen, no one really knows or understands if Jean took her own life or if she was killed because of her political ties. Mm -hmm. Right. That's that. Right. Because one thing for sure, they said if she she would have had a full meal and then took these drugs. It it just doesn't make sense. Yeah, she like sat down for some full meal that she prepared. I don't know. There's, it just doesn't Everybody make Everybody was like, she would have just had um, Empty. like Fruit Loops. Mm-hmm. Nothing. Or nothing. Nothing. <laughs> yeah. So it get right to, into her stream. But yeah. Yeah. If she's taking a, a drug to unalive herself, then food would stop the metabolization of that. So then why would she take food? And she's intelligent. She she knows that. However, she did so, deal with a lot of um, depressive um, episodes, not only dep- I think she was manic depressive. I don't know if that's the same term they use today, but mm-hmm. she did have some uh, mental health issues that would send her deep um, into depressive moods. Yeah. Yeah. So now in history, uh, we find Soviet forces have encircled Berlin, the German capital on April 25th, 1945. That same day, Soviet forces linked up with their American counterparts, attacking them from the West and central Germany. After heavy fighting, Soviet forces neared Adolf Hitler's command bunker in central Berlin. On April 30th, 1945, Hitler committed Hitler committed suicide. Within days, Berlin fell to the Soviets. German armed forces surrendered unconditionally in the West on May 7th and in the East on May 9th. Victory in Europe, VE Day, was proclaimed May 8th, 1945, and celebrations in Washington, London, Moscow, and Paris commenced. Truman seemed um, receptive to aiding the Japanese towards surrendering. General Eisenhower was convinced there would be no need to bomb the Japanese. But an arms race with the Soviet people needed to be preemptively halted. It was felt by some. This is very interesting. There is still an idea that World War II ended by how, Alexis? By the bomb. Like, wh- by the bomb. Yeah. The bomb ended World War right. II. But it is common knowledge that World War II was basically over before the bomb um, was dropped. Yep. Why? Not only that, the bomb was not dropped along a military line. It was dropped on civilians purposely. It cannot be said for sure that on the morning of the Hiroshima bombing, Oppenheimer knew that the Japanese were looking for peace, but they were. It is evident that after this date, he felt misleaded by his government and was not quick to trust government officials again. Unsure why Oppenheimer named the test of the bomb Trinity. So let's back up a little bit to testing Trinity to the test site. I'm sorry, Trinity. As if people were not already anxious enough, a last minute test firing of the um, implosion explosives uh, without the plutonium core had just indicated that the bomb might be a dud. It might not even work. This Mm -hmm. is before the test, not Hiroshima, but before the test site at Trinity. Oppenheimer recited a stanza from Hindu um, religious text and it went like this. In battle, in forest, at the precipice in the mountains, on the dark great sea, in the midst of javelins and arrows, in sleep and confusion, in the depths of shame, the good deeds a man has done before defend him. Everyone involved was overworked and exhausted. At 5.30 a.m., the test was conducted. Heat could be felt on the face 20 miles away. The mushrooms soared to the heavens. It worked. It worked indeed. Everyone returned to Los Alamos rejoicing. Oppenheimer knew the Japanese cities that would be targeted. Days later, after the testing at Trinity, he began muttering, those poor little people, those poor little people, referring to the Japanese. He cited with an air of resignation, like, ah, too bad for them. That very week, however, Oppenheimer was working hard to make sure that the bomb exploded efficiently over those poor little people. And then we come to August 6th, 1945. Later in the day, the news was announced over the Los Alamos public address system. 
Attention, please. Attention, please. One of our units has just been successfully dropped on Japan. Frank Oppenheimer was standing in the hallway right outside his brother's office when he heard the news. His first reaction was, thank God it wasn't a dud. But within seconds, he recalled, one suddenly got this horror of all the people that have been killed. The bomb had been dropped with no discussion, no peaceful demonstration for the Japanese people. That day, a crowd gathered in the auditorium. Oppenheimer took the stage and he raised his hands like a prized fighter. Everyone cheered. But what really happened? So the population of Hiroshima, when the bomb was dropped, was approximately 350,000 people. This figure includes residents, some military personnel, people from surrounding towns and villages mobilized to demolish buildings in the city, and people from uh, Japan's colonies, Korea, Taiwan, and the Chinese continent. Some of the latter were conscripted laborers. A few foreign students were there from China, Southeast Asia, and U.S. prisoners of war were also in the city. The exact number of deaths from the atomic bombing is still unknown. Estimates place the number of dead by the end of December 1945, when the acute effects of radiation poisoning had largely subsided Mm. at roughly how many do you think, Alexis? I don't remember. 140,000. So this is um, supplemental information. I didn't get this from the book, just so you know. Um, What I wanted to do here is just give a POV to the people of Hiroshima. Um, Since our POV sticks with, as it should, Oppenheimer. But going back to him, virtually everyone in the street for nearly a mile around was instantly and seriously burned by the heat of the bomb, a scientific observer said. So among, I believe, the Alamos um, township, these scientists, some after the damage or the, I don't know, after they thought it was safe, some went to Hiroshima to see what had happened. Mm -hmm. And this is what they said. The hot flash burned suddenly and strangely. They, the Japanese, told us of people who wore striped clothing upon whom the skin was burned in stripes. There were many who thought themselves lucky, who crawled out of the ruins of their homes only slightly injured, but they died anyway. They died days or weeks later from the radium-like rays emitted in great numbers at the moment of the explosion. End quote. Revulsion began to grow Around the township scientists, people became physically ill thinking about what they'd contribute to. Oppenheimer realized quickly this was only beginning. Uh, destruction would only go grow greater and no country is safe. And that's the end of part one. Alexis, should we take a break? Let's do it. All right. What did you think of American Prometheus, The Triumph and Tragedy of J. Robert Oppenheimer, Part 1? It was informative. um, Like I mentioned earlier, it was quite a dense book. So it was a lot of information um, shared about Oppenheimer and his experiences in his youth, relationships with the women he had and didn't have. Uh, So it was interesting in that sense. And then learning this um, bit about the fact that the war was practically over just as you know so did you not know this i didn't know that i didn't know that wow um yeah that's so interesting it's not i don't know if it's widely discussed yeah but it's yeah i can't say whether or not it was talked about in school or not i just i just know i didn't know that i thought the bomb ended the war and that was it um and the bomb is a perfectly neat bow to tie up the war um, especially when you think of all the evils that Nazi Germany brought about, then you say, oh, well, you saved it. You you plugged up the leak with the bomb and that's your bow. Mm-hmm. But Hitler had already uh, t- taken his own life. Germany had already um, surrendered. What was this for? It, it was excess. <laughs> Japan was open to surrendering. It was it was for something, clearly. Yes. Uh, it just wasn't for what a lot of people think. And then the two, not only the test bomb, but another bomb was dropped, right? Well, right. you're talking about Hiroshima and Nagasaki. They So they did drop two. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
<laughs> not to test that Trinity because they ain't learned nothing from that. Yeah. So, and to, so if that is the case, what I'm hearing is correct. They dropped two. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'll end it with that. I won't say anything more, but Kari, share your thoughts on this first half um, chapters one to 23 on um, American Prometheus, please. Mm-hmm. So um, this book is exhausting. Uh, when you when you think about what's at stake, the actions of the majority we've come we're coming in contact with through this book don't make sense to me. Everyone is so um, narcissistic. They are so absorbed in the advancement of science, not just for the sake of science, but for the sake of their name. There is a point where. Oppenheimer is being considered to run the um, the division. Uh, Los Alamos. Thank you, Los Alamos. And it's like, but he don't have a Nobel Prize and we all got Nobel Prizes. <laughs> <laughs> That's what they said. <laughs> like, period. Um, and it's like the titles, the the awards that that is the accolades and the public recognition so many brilliant minds are focused on that. They they are so eager. Now, some truly are fearful that Germany will develop this before the Americans do. And if we don't stop them, we will be the victim of this bomb. So we honestly have no choice. And in that way, they feel comfortable just washing their hands of responsibility. It's as if history is moving them to a decision that they can't avoid. Um But then uh, they got a hold of what is very likely to be Germany's plans for a bomb that no one has ever seen before. And it was wrong. It was like, they throwing parts at people. (laughs) Yeah, they're bomb bomb parts. (laughs) They're nowhere near close. So we all good. Let's keep going. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So historians continue to debate whether, um, whether this decision to drop these bombs on Japanese civilians was uh, the right thing to do. And the the way we even uh, talk about this is just so casual. Like even the way the bombs were named, it was like little boy and fat man or something. You know what I'm talking mm-hmm. about? Little man, fat boy, something yeah. like that. It's like, this is serious. <laughs> this is serious. Everybody stop. Everybody sit down. Can we get in a room? However, um, you can't even trust the people on your team because while you're um, bringing them on to fight for your cause, you think they're actually totally against the mission of your country. So, uh, yeah, it's tricky. You're investigating. (laughs) You're investigating the people that are running this organization yeah. that helped you develop this bomb mm-hmm. that is no unity yeah there is no unity here so that's that well wow. did i say what i thought about you didn't ask me what i thought about it did i you? sure did ask you what you thought about it but oh i'm not having fun i'm not having fun <laughs> i'm not <laughs> well we gonna finish the book kari am i oh yeah we better okay so <laughs> what we doing next week okay Oh, yes. Oppenheimer part two. Stay tuned. Yeah. Yes, you guys. Bring bring the attitude and the excitement back. Okay. Oh, it's the best part of my week. (laughs) (laughs) This book is terrible. (laughs) Hey, y'all, listen, listen, don't read it. Don't read it's it, but please soon. listen to it's our show. It's too soon. It's too soon. Thank you for listening. Do anything else. <laughs> Do anything else. <laughs> why did I? Why did I pick this book? I apologize to everyone involved. <laughs> and this is part one, but we cover in part two next week, <sighs> and I will cover that for us. Okay. So thank you for listening to Lit Society. We look forward to meeting up with you next week, Thursday. Uh, Lit Society is brought to you by Alexis Anaria. That's me <laughs> and. Kari Herrera. Support the cause by leaving a five-star review for our show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and leave a comment about why you absolutely love us on both of those um, platforms. Also, take a look at us on YouTube. We're here. Hi. Good to see you. Thank you for showing up. Um, If you've enjoyed what you just heard, tell a friend about Lit Society and visit Lit Society 
pod.com for show notes this month's book list and to sign up for our amazing email newsletter. And until next week, next time, read something. Read something.